What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Eamon Javers sitting in for Kelly Evans today. Here's what's ahead. China's crackdown costing its own companies $1 trillion in market cap, but now saying it wants to work with the SEC on IPOs. Does that mean there's value in Chinese-listed companies right now? Plus, most industries are dealing with a worker shortage. But for cybersecurity, it comes at a particularly critical time. How can U.S. companies defend themselves without the people to do it? And in rapid fire, food, fashion, and tax evasion, hopefully not all at the same time, plus the potentially dire consequences of new rules in California. You may not be able to find bacon. Panic alert. But the market's once again nearing all-time highs. So let's start with Dom Chu and the numbers. Dom, let's go. All right, so the numbers here, Eamon, are actually pretty positive right now, but they're not as positive as they were earlier in the session. For the S&P 500, just to give you an idea of the range, we're at 4,400 almost, that big figure here, up about five or six points. At the highs of the day, we were up 27 handles, 27 points, and down one of the lows. So we're tilting towards the lower end of today's trading range, at least for now. So we'll see if that carries over. The Nasdaq up about one-third of one percent, one-tenth of one percent gains for the Dow Industrials. 34,975 the last trade there. If you take a look at the last month, the leadership from the market is coming from some places that the bulls don't find as bullish. If you look at real estate and utilities, the two best performing sectors on a one month basis. Meanwhile, energy down nine and a half percent here on these particular ETFs, just about the worst performer, if not the worst performer, in fact, on a large scale basis. So when defensive sectors like utilities and real estate lead, energy lags, it may not signal perhaps some of the more robustness for that cyclicality trade in the overall market. So something some traders are watching. And then one of the best performing stocks in the overall S&P 500 today is Under Armour. The athletic apparel maker is up four and a half percent, thanks in large part to an upgrade from a catalyst trading perspective. This company comes out with earnings tomorrow. Analysts at Baird say go into it. They have a tilt towards looking to buy into that particular trading catalyst. They think it's been an underperformer to Nike, which it has been over the last few months. There could be a potential catch-up trade there. So watch Under Armour shares. Again, 4.5% to the upside. An underperformer that could be catching up, according to Baird. I'll send things back over to you, Eamon. Thanks, Dom. Maybe a come-from-behind victory like we saw in the Olympics over the weekend. Now let's move to the crackdown in China. Beijing is now calling for better communications with regulators here in the U.S. Investors are optimistic about that sentiment, pushing Asian markets higher today after last month's sell-off. Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing with the details. Eunice, tell us what's going on over there. Thanks, Edmund. Well, China's stock regulator wants more communication and coordination, specifically when it comes to listings or potential listings for Chinese firms. The CSRC, or the China Securities Regulatory Commission, posted a statement on its website over the weekend uh, suggesting that the two sides should find a, quote, proper resolution. And this is after the SEC had uh, said that it wanted to see additional disclosures from Chinese companies uh, before they potentially list. Um, after 
after all of the uncertainty from Beijing's regulatory crackdowns. Now, in this uh, statement, the CSRC's key points were that China is open to IPOs at home and overseas, but that companies should comply with rules. The new policies, uh, the CSRC says, are meant to promote sustainable, healthy industries and that Beijing would improve its communication for greater predictability. Now, state media have been echoing these remarks, also stressing that China does not want to see decoupling. It wants to cooperate. However, what I found interesting is that uh, the coordination is seen as on the policy side, as opposed to any mention about the accounting issues that the two uh, uh, regulators have had. This is, as you all know, um, Eamon, a long-time issue uh, between these two regulatory bodies. Now, coming up this week, um, the New Oriental and TAL, uh, private tutoring firms, were supposed to be announcing their earnings this week on Tuesday and on Thursday. Those earnings reports have been postponed because of all this regulatory uncertainty. Eamon? Eunice, can you drill down for us and explain what the Chinese government actually means when it talks about a cybersecurity investigation? We've seen this in the past with certain companies where they say, we want to investigate, we're going to take a pause and examine this company. In the U.S., if you saw that, you might think, well, the government has a concern that that company uh, might be leaking too much information. But when the Chinese government says it's conducting a cybersecurity investigation into a company, what do they actually mean by that? Well, in this case, uh, the cyber watchdog has said that they want to make sure that the Chinese data that's out there is going to be in line with national security. So, for example, with Didi, um, this is a, a huge investigation that's under that's um, currently underway with Didi, with coordinating seven different ministries. Um, a lot of the concern is that is that Didi has been described as this treasure trove of data uh, with access to information about the whereabouts and travel plans for hundreds of millions of Chinese, which. You know, some people say it includes Chinese officials and that this could be potentially a concern if it falls into, from the Chinese perspective, the wrong hands. Amen. And and quickly, Eunice, on that point, when they say it needs to be in line with national security, are they saying that they want the data themselves? Does that mean the Chinese government is saying you got to give us this data or else you can't really do business in this country? Well, the Chinese might already have that data, but they will they're they're saying they want to make sure that this data doesn't uh, get accessed by the wrong people. So, for example, looking at uh, vendors and supply chains, closing up loopholes in that way. Um, what I thought was interesting, if you look at the ministries that are going in for the investigation, it's not only like the tax and the market regulators who could look at the books uh, for the IPO, the prospectus, but it's also the natural resources ministry, the transport ministry. And so uh, there's been a lot of speculation that that means that China wants to make sure its logistics network is completely um, in line, that that a lot of the mapping issues that it might have, um, that there there might be some questions that people would have about uh, exactly what what China looks like. And China doesn't necessarily want the U.S. or any other um, um, from China's perspective adversary to see uh, what the um, the map of China actually looks like or that logistics network. Fascinating stuff. Eunice Yun in Beijing, thanks so much to you. So with China indicating it may be willing to work with U.S. regulators, are China-listed companies now investable? My next guest says the slide in those names provides some great opportunities, provided you're not afraid of the risks. So joining me now is Simeon Hyman, global investment strategist at ProShares Advisors. Simeon, 
What does that mean, provided you're willing to deal with these risks? Well, look, the, the risk of government action in China is a real one. Uh, their efforts to kind of push uh, a little bit of private benefit or perhaps a little bit more towards the public side is a real one. But there are limits. Uh, and as an example of sort of perhaps the rhetoric uh, being or the bark being more than the bite, bilateral trade between the U.S. and China uh, hit all time highs. That's after just a little bit of a pullback at the beginning of the pandemic. So you see the rhetoric softening. So there are certainly limits to being able to create a competitive economy uh, in with regards to how far you push that envelope. And then, of course, it's not a surprise to see investors come in because we're looking at valuations of an example, the CSI 300 uh, at relative multiples that we haven't seen in, in over a decade. So, you know, perhaps the risk is priced in. One of the companies that you've been spotlighting here is Alibaba, which you say is trading at a significant discount. But maybe you could flip that argument and say it should be trading at a significant discount because of all the uncertainty here. You just don't know where the Chinese government is going to choose to step in. You heard Yunus there in Beijing listing all of the different concerns that the Chinese government has about the data that these companies have. So if you're investing in an Alibaba, how do you know when the next big foot is going to come clamping down? Well, you never know. Right. But it is a question of what the level of that discount is. And right now, Alibaba is trading at about two thirds of a discount. So about a 65 percent discount to the U.S. to the S&P 500 consumer discretionary sector. And by the way, if you take a basket of the Chinese e-commerce companies that, as an example, we hold in our ProShares online retail index as a group, they're also trading at a similar about two thirds discount to the S&P 500 consumer discretionary sector. So at some at some point, folks will step in. And that's what we saw U.S. investors do. And I think at this level of valuation, it's not a terrible idea. You're also at a discount overall to the MSCI EFI index. So if you're looking to do something outside of the U.S. for diversification purposes, you know, that great big European discount, China's on sale even cheaper than Europe right now. So you talk about that basket of e-commerce names. So if you've made your case, and I'm an investor out there watching you talk about this, what are the other names that you like in that space? If you're looking for Chinese names, you think, you know what, I'm willing to take that risk on. Where do you go? Well, yeah, I, I, we're fans of the index. So I would say the basket makes a lot of sense. So you've got opportunities. So you, you wouldn't play individual names in China? You would go with the indexes? I think you're, you're, you're better off with a basket. Yeah. Um, because, again, particularly, as you note, the regulatory issues, they're not always coming down at the precise same time for all the names that are involved. You do see some idiosyncratic risk relative to uh, the government's involvement. So uh, it certainly seems prudent for, for sort of first principles, but also with regards to managing the regulatory risk uh, basket approach makes a lot of sense. And if you're in China, is it all, do you want to be in technology and e-commerce or are there other sectors broadly that you want to think about? Well, you're still talking about tech and tech and e-commerce as being one of the biggest pieces, but, um, and, and we think that's actually not a terrible way to play this because from a broader perspective, it's one of the great tailwinds of broad markets. So as an example, uh, we know globally the penetration of e-commerce is quite low. Even in the U.S., it's only about 13 percent. And even if you look at the U.S. online retail space, it's trading at a discount, which is kind of 
odd to odd to think about given uh, given the tailwinds to the growth of that sector. So it's certainly not a bad choice. Uh, taking the broad index is not a bad choice either. Uh, but we'd be fans of focusing on e-commerce as well. Great discussion there. Thank you so much, Simeon Hyman with ProShares Advisors. Now, three major developments out of Washington, D.C. The two-year suspension of the debt ceiling has expired, and the Treasury Department is taking extraordinary measures, it's that time again, to avoid hitting the borrowing limits. Senate negotiators have finalized language for the trillion-dollar infrastructure deal, and House Democrats' failure to extend the eviction moratorium is rankling the party. So here to drill down on all the implications for Wall Street, Libby Cantrell, Managing Director and Head of Public Policy at PIMCO. Libby, we just got access to this bill over the weekend. It's thousands of pages, there's millions of provisions in there, possibly. Do you have any sense of what's actually in this infrastructure bill and what it's going to do and where the sticking points might still be? Yeah, good afternoon. Um, yeah, this is usually, as you know, the first, uh, the first few weeks of August are usually quite quiet in Washington. That is not not the case this year. Uh, yeah, as you said, we got the we finally got the legislative text, and and of course the devil will be in the details. But but largely, Ammon, this is you know very much as predicted. Uh, this funds uh, tr sort of traditional infrastructure, roads and and bridges, uh, also broadband and water infrastructure, uh, and and as you and as you know, this is bipartisan, and this is very much a priority for President Biden. It was something that he campaigned on. Uh, our expectation is that this will. You know, ultimately uh, pass both chambers of Congress and be signed into law probably by the end of September, if not a little bit sooner. So, you know, big win for him uh, for all intents and purposes. This might be the only bipartisan thing that can happen in Washington this year. You know, in the, in the post-January 6th era, you know, polarization is so intense, more than I've seen it in my career. And yet Biden campaigned on being able to do something in a bipartisan way. It looks like he might be on the verge of getting that. But I wonder, as you look at this from an investor's perspective, all of this is way down the line, right? I mean, we learned in the Obama years that shovel ready doesn't necessarily mean shovel ready, that there's nothing actually that's literally shovel ready. So when you're an investor and you look at this, you say, okay, enormous amount of money coming for infrastructure, roads, ports, bridges, airports, all that stuff. But how do you play it? Are you looking at individual stocks? You can say, I can buy that now because I know this is coming in the out years. You know, that's a great point. And from an economic perspective, in terms of our forecasting, it would, that's it's exactly right. And these this all has you know very long lags. Uh, much of this is going to be predicated on on the states actually deploying this money. So this is unlikely to get into the economy immediately, as you as you point out. At the same time, uh, a lot of this fiscal stimulus that we've seen that has been very front loaded, whether it's the stimulus payments or unemployment insurance or the, the eviction moratorium, all of those things are now coming to an end. So there is actually this sort of fiscal cliff. This will, uh, the infrastructure bill will likely mitigate to some extent the impact of that. But for sure, this is going to be playing out uh, you know, over the course of years, not not being front loaded like we have seen with with COVID relief. So there there will still be sort of this fiscal cliff that we will experience uh, in in 2022. And as a result, you know, from an economic forecasting perspective, our GDP forecasts I take that into consideration. What do you make about the 
the era after the bipartisan good feelings moment that we're going to have here in Washington if they get this bill passed. Because the Democrats are talking about another $3 trillion in spending on a whole host of things, including early education, uh, all sorts of uh, things to improve lifestyles and outcomes in the United States. They're going to have to do that on a strictly party line vote. They're going to look for the 50 vote margin in order to do that in the Senate. Uh, is that likely in your view? And again, from an investor's perspective, what do you think about in terms of stocks you want to play looking at that enormous amount of spending that could be coming down the pike later in the year? Yeah, so you know, we've actually been um, pretty optimistic that this dual track process that was previewed several months ago would actually you know, kind of come to fruition. Uh, so now we're seeing that the first leg of that with this bipartisan bill, uh, and, and as you point out, now it's going to be in some ways uh, even more difficult uh, for Democrats to you know, find unanimity around yeah. uh, some of this sort of you know, not hard uh, infrastructure, but more soft infrastructure, things like childcare and universal pre-K and, and healthcare and what have you. I think our view is that you will see something pass, but it won't be this sort of three and a half trillion dollar figure uh, that has been previewed. We, you know, our expectation is more sort of in the one and a half to sort of two trillion dollar ballpark. Again, over kind of eight to 10 years, though, so to your point about an economic perspective, still will have some sort of, you know, some sort of lags and, and be kind of more incremental, uh, certainly than what the COVID relief bill that we've seen uh, over the last, you know, year or so, and will probably be offset to a some to some extent by, you know, in tax increases. And I think from a market's perspective, that's what the market will really, really be focused on. You know, how, uh, you know, where does the corporate tax rate land? Right. How does uh, an increase in the individual rate effect demand. So those are the things that I think are going to be the market's going to start focusing on. But yes, we are optimistic that you will see something, but it will probably be more watered down in the final form. So Democrats aren't going to get everything that they want, but they might get something. Libby Cantrell, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Fascinating conversation. And to get a list of the stocks the street likes as the infrastructure bill is set to pass, head to cnbc.com slash pro for that. And coming up here, as cyber attacks mount, we'll dig into the struggles both the public and the private sectors are facing when it comes to defending themselves. A closer look at the job hunt for hackers is next. Plus, the CEO of Bridgestone joins us exclusively to talk about the tire company's new tech bet, the Delta variant, and the speed bumps it's seeing in the supply chain. The exchange is back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
And welcome back to The Exchange. Even as American companies are getting clobbered by the hackers, they're also struggling to find enough people to defend against them. So much so that the demand for cyber workers hit an all-time high this quarter, according to CyberSeek. In the second quarter of 2021 alone, there were more than 183,000 job postings for cyber employees. Of those, well over 7,000 open jobs were in government and more than 175,000 were in the private sector. Part of the problem is that there isn't a big enough pipeline of students going into cybersecurity careers. So joining me now to figure out what to do about all this is Barbara Massa. She's the executive vice president and chief of business operations at FireEye. Barbara, tell me what you're seeing in terms of this job shortage overall uh, and how you bring more people into this sector. Great. Well, thanks for having us here for this really important discussion. So what we're seeing is the tactics, techniques, and procedures that cyber attackers use have become increasingly unpredictable. And this has meant adopting outside-of-the-box thinking with regards to the cyber defenders that we're seeking to hire. So while traditional college systems absolutely play an important role in growth and development, they can't be the only place that we go to find and nurture cybersecurity talent. The hands-on experience that can be gained via certification programs, cyber competitions, training programs carry tremendous tremendous value for problem solving against today's emerging threats. But so, so many of these jobs, know, Barbara, so many of the job listings that you see out there require a four-year degree, right? I mean, I majored in political science in undergrad. I don't think that would necessarily qualify me for a cybersecurity job. I don't think maybe it didn't qualify me for any job, but it, it certainly didn't qualify me for a cybersecurity job. Uh, and yet those degrees are required for a lot of these jobs. Why is that still happening? So I think, quite frankly, companies need to move, such as we have, much more briskly into the land of quite simply removing the degree requirements. Altogether. Focus on altogether. Um, there's certainly some positions where you may still need a four-year degree or a PhD or a graduate degree, but what we're finding is that we need much more of the problem-solving, critical thinking, and out-of-the-box skill sets versus just that four-year degree to be successful for a career in cyber. So how do you test for that? That though, right? I mean, the four-year degree was at least a credential which said, okay, this person, they, they took the SATs at some point, they graduated from high school, they made it through college, they showed up for class. They're basically a responsible, solid citizen type if they can graduate from college. We know at least that. But if you're talking about doing away with that, so what do you do? Do you give the people a test on site? Do you bring them in and say, it, run, run some code for us and we'll see how you do? Yeah, you, you do things about, you know, show me, show, show me your work, right? Yeah. Show me how you'd solve this problem. Show me how you'd reverse engineer this piece of code. Um, and then there's also certification programs. And what we found is that in this environment where the problems are, require so much more agility to solving them, sometimes those short form cert programs that are much more quick and relevant and up to date have been equally impactful in showing us that they have the capability to solve these problems. I've been talking to a lot of experts in this, and one of the things that they say is that this industry in particular is still too overwhelmingly white and male, and there's a real lack of diversity in cybersecurity. And the challenge is figuring out how to weed out all the unintended, perhaps, bias in some of these job listings and other ways of recruiting to bring in a much bigger funnel in terms of who you're bringing into the industry. How do you do that, though, in real terms? Bingo. Bingo. So that was one of the big drivers for us removing the degree requirements for the vast majority of our positions as well, was we really sought a much larger talent pool. And oftentimes, those diverse candidates 
they don't, they don't have a path to a four-year IV or they don't have a path to a four-year degree. So we're concentrating more of our time at regional technical institutes, community college, CERT programs, um, training and finding people at conferences like B-Sides and DEF CONs or, or similar. So that has opened up the aperture significantly on our ability to tap into far more broad, diverse pipelines, which is you know good, good for all of us, not just solving cyber issues, but good for humanity and the right thing to do. Now, all these private sector companies rely on the government. They rely on cybersecurity experts at the FBI, NSA, and all those different uh, three-letter agencies that we talk about in cybersecurity. And yet the government itself is really struggling with this hiring issue as well and really trying to figure out exactly how they can bring in people. One of the statistics we heard last week that was so fascinating to me is that the federal government is paying about $63,000 a year for some of these entry-level cybersecurity jobs. And then you look at what's happening in the private sector, they're making $100,000 a year. It's just a huge difference. How can the federal government get people to take that kind of a pay differential and come work for the good guys, so to speak, against the foreign hackers around the world who are trying to destroy American private industry? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think we have an opportunity to do much more public-private partnerships. That's something that we've kind of tested the waters with on a small scale. Um, you know, those that that go into service, um, you know, they're very mission-oriented, um, rightly so. And I think we in the private sector have an opportunity to play a bigger role in helping do some of that talent exchange, information and knowledge sharing, and kind of joint training so that those that do want to go in and, and provide service have the opportunity opportunity to experience and do that knowledge exchange more so than public private uh, does today by way of talent exchange. Um, and I think that that's something that has a lot of opportunity that we're just starting to explore. Barbara, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us. That's Barbara Massa of FireEye. And coming up, one Wall Street firm is initiating this stock with a buy, saying it's ahead of the curve on shifting fashion trends. You won't believe this one. Plus, Reese Witherspoon's production company is selling a majority stake to a firm backed by private equity and some Hollywood veterans. We'll have all the details of this big little media deal when we come back. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. And welcome back to the exchange markets right now. Treading water in the swimming pool on this first workday of August at the high. The Dow was up nearly 256 points, which is a new record. And in case you're wondering why GE is suddenly trading at 100 bucks a share today, that's because the company has just completed its one for eight reverse stock split, cutting the number of shares outstanding from nearly nine billion to just over one billion. Now over to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel, what's going on? Hi, Amen. Here is your TMC News update at this hour. In southern Florida, there is surging demand for vaccinations. Dozens of cars can be seen waiting at vaccination sites in Hialeah and Fort Lauderdale. This is COVID hospitalizations in Florida hit an all-time high. Back to we'll have more on the latest outbreaks coming up a little bit later in the show. Starting tomorrow, Target will require workers to wear a mask at stores in counties with high COVID risk. The retailer also strongly urging customers in those areas to mask up. Target joining Walmart now, which issued similar mask rules last week. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says that the infrastructure bill should get passed this week. 
because it has support from both parties, although Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says that the amendment process shouldn't be rushed. And on the news tonight, the fight to get the infrastructure program enacted before the Senate leaves town for its August recess. That, of course, airs tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. You're now up to date. Eamon, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thanks so much. Now, bullish on a high waist and a wide leg, Robinhood attracts the retail investors and Californians might consider stocking up on a certain breakfast staple. Mm-mm, good. All that and more coming up in today's rapid fire. We'll explain all of that when the exchange comes right back. All right, let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time now for Rapid Fire. That means we go quick through these topics here to help break down the headlines. CNBC's Dominic Chu and Robert Frank and Gina Sanchez. She's the CEO of Chantico Global and Chief Market Strategist at Lidu Advisors. First up, Levi's getting a boost today after Stiefel initiated the apparel company with a buy, saying that post-COVID secular trends are moving toward wider and looser jeans and higher-waisted styles for women, changes that Levi's has been ahead of the curve on, if you see what we did there. Shares are up more than 4% today and more than 40% on the year. Dom, you're the most fashionable guy in this segment. What do you make of this? <laughs> I don't know. I think Robert Frank and Gina both have me outdone on the fashion front here. But what I will say is we've been talking about this trend in mom jeans or so-called mom jeans for a while now. And Levi's has pretty much put some stake behind it. And now analysts are catching up with this saying, you know, this is going to be a secular driver. If this really is the beginning of a longer term trend, Trend, it's a wardrobe refresh cycle. If that does happen, it could have legs for quite some time. Have and legs to the you, upside. Did you yeah, write that you in the you, you see just, what I did? You just that did that, didn't you? You said curves, right? So I'm going to do the. Yeah, but the that, was written, that was written for the, That's in the prompter. They have a team of writers here who does that. You did that off the top of your head. I like that. So, so here's what I would say. I would say it's, it, it's funny to me and an interesting point here because if you look at the way Levi's has run, the stock is totally reflecting it, right? From a valuation perspective, you say, hey, it's run up so far. Maybe it's overvalued. Well, it's trading at just about 20 times next year's estimated earnings. So that puts it just a hair below where the overall market is right now. So maybe there is a little something to this idea that Levi's has some room to run. Gina, help me understand this, because I've seen people since COVID talking about jeans are now formal wear, right? It used to be you dress down in jeans, and now I see all these people out there complaining and saying, hey, I don't want to dress up anymore. I don't want to put jeans on and go back to work. Are jeans the new semi-formal, or where are we at? Absolutely, because uh, the the casual actually went down to yoga pants, right? So that's actually a step up from yoga pants. Which is a step up from no pants, which I heard people doing on Zoom, which is no good. That's true. That was the first level of uh, of the (laughs) pandemic, right? We can always descend Um, further. Exactly. But but then we went to yoga pants and now we're at jeans and jeans, quite frankly, if you if you're talking about sort of this hybrid work, now you have to go into the office every so often and you don't want to look like you're wearing your yoga pants, then Levi's works. And quite frankly, I think Dom is absolutely right at 20 times forward earnings. I mean, they are really not super overvalued and comfort is the style right, for probably the next 12 to 24 months. Well, they never got me in a pair of skinny jeans, and now they never will. Next up, Robinhood announcing more than 300,000 users participated in the IPO last week. That represents about 1.3% of all funded accounts on the platform. As much as 25% of outstanding shares went to Robinhood customers, a significantly higher allocation to retail investors compared to other IPOs. Robinhood shares up around 4% today, but it's been a bumpy ride since its debut last Thursday. Robert, let me go to you on this one. You know, normally you say, look, retail investors, they don't get the IPO allocation. They don't get to participate in these things. So it's a good thing 
that retail investors got into this one on Robinhood. But on the other hand, it went down 10% on the first day. So is that a win or a loss? Well, I think largely it's a win. I think that the attention on the retail investor in this IPO was probably overblown. Look, you know, they, it is a large number, 300,000 investors. That's a decent amount. But people who are using the analogy of AMC, for instance, of, of the new retail revolution in shareholders, I just don't think that they really hit the mark with Robinhood. Because if you look at Robinhood, those shareholders have less than 2% of the market cap. It's about $500 million owned by these retail investors with a market cap of about $30 billion. So it's not a lot. You compare that with AMC, where those 4 million shareholders own about 80% of that company. So it's good. It's great to have your customers participating in IPO. It's good for marketing. But it's not like AMC, where those retail investors really are the company and are driving that forward. Gina, what do you make of this trend? I mean, is this sort of a new meme stock or a semi-meme stock, maybe? And then what about the issue of the insiders in this company selling their shares in the first day? I mean, Robinhood has held itself out in some ways as a company that is good for the little guy, good for retail investors. Uh, it's part of a revolution in trading. And yet you see the same old thing happening where the insiders are selling tens of millions of dollars worth of stock on the first day. Does that hurt the image of this company with its base? Well, the, whether it hurts the image of its company with its base, the, the point of, the, of, of their IPO was that I don't think they could actually place um, as much stock as they would have wanted to with, uh, with, with actual institutional investors who tend to be more buy and hold and tend to create more stability in the first uh, days of trading. So because they, they were sort of going for this retail feel, it had a retail feel, which is very bumpy. Um, and the reality is, is that I think that their their entire business model comes into question when you look at the fact that they still participate and pay for order flow, which is to say that they're taking all of those retail trades and they're selling them on to big institutions. So let's not get too overzealous about what this actually what's actually going on here. And I would say that it, that that's the reason that the institutions were probably not that keen on it is because they don't believe the business model. Next up, the infrastructure bill making its way through a traffic jam in Congress. Again, see what we did there. And as lawmakers look for ways to pay for the increase in spending, a crypto tax crackdown has made its way into the final bill text. There's always some little thing in there. And Robert, you've been following this one. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, that little thing kind of snuck in last week, Eamon, and people are kind of just waking up to it now. And what it does is it raised about $28 billion of that $550 billion in new spending from cracking down on crypto tax evasion. Now, right now, it's kind of an honor system where if you hold crypto or if you're a crypto exchange, you kind of have to voluntarily report it to the IRS. And we know what happens when taxes are voluntary. Very few people pay it. <laughs> and if you look, talk to the IRS chief, you know, he said, look, we think a large reason for the up to one trillion dollars in uncollected taxes every year is crypto tax evasion. So what this does is it forces uh, reporting by Coinbase and all the exchanges and it also defines any company that facilitates the transfer of digital assets. That's an important phrase that they will have to comply. So it's a much broader definition of who will have to comply. And now they're going to have to report all of this and all their customer information to the IRS. And presumably that's going to raise more money. We'll just have to see. Presumably. Dom, you and I were talking in the newsroom about this just before the show. And you told me about something very sneaky but very legal uh, that people are doing about loss harvesting. Explain that. I thought that was fascinating. Explain what's going on there. 
I mean, so, so we've been talking about this for a few months now, this idea that these are cryptocurrencies not treated like securities. They are treated like collectibles, which means that you're not bound by the same wash sale rules when you take losses, meaning you could sell some crypto for a loss and immediately buy it back again and try to ride the, the, the move higher here and still be able to book those losses. In essence, what this tells you is that the tax law around cryptocurrencies is still very much in the early stages and that many of these government officials are going to have to try to find a way to play catch up in some way. But again, I would say, Eamon, this is a very love-hate relationship because the more you have government regulators looking for at least a little piece of the pie, so to speak, the more it does tend to legitimize, right, some of the cryptocurrency infrastructure, the the ecosystem, and, and maybe even the assets and coins themselves. So certainly something to watch. Gina, your take on this as we talk about the honor system in tax payment, that's probably not a good way for the government to raise revenue, right? So what do we do? No, no, it's not. And I think that the the element there, there's several interesting elements about what they're trying to do. But one is the required uh, reporting to the IRS for any crypto transaction over $10,000. That will certainly make it uh, you know, make it more challenging for at least large transactions to evade taxes. Um, and, and that's good. But the thing is, is that the crypto space really is is floating on all of the excess liquidity that's happening in, in the economy. As we start to gear back up as an economy and we start to see interest rates eventually start to rise, it may not be for 12 or 24 months, but it will happen. Um, it's going to take a lot of the wind out of the sails of crypto. Well, that's it for us on Rapid Fire. We ran out of time for bacon, but just know that California could soon be facing a shortage thanks to a new animal welfare law. We had a great bacon segment plan and a lot of puns. The writers have been going overtime on this. We can't get to it. We're out of time. Thank you, Dominic Chu, Robert Frank, and Gina Sanchez. Thanks to all of you. And up next, from new mask guidance to, to the FDA under pressure to approve vaccines, we'll round up the latest COVID headlines. And welcome back. With cases rising across the country thanks to the highly contagious Delta variant, Florida broke a previous record for COVID hospitalizations today. This as the FDA is being pressured to grant full approval to COVID-19 vaccines. Meg Terrell joins us now to explain what's going on here, Meg. Hey, Eamon, the Delta variant is really causing this major surge in cases across the country. Uh, they are up more than 400 percent since July 1st, recording an average of more than 72,000 per day. On Friday, we had 100,000 daily cases reported to the CDC. Hospitalizations are also higher. New admissions now more than 6,000 nationally. Deaths are up 40 percent in the last month to more than 300 people dying from COVID every day across the country. Infection rates are spreading everywhere. Now, 80 percent almost of counties in the U.S. either in high or substantial transmission subject to CDC's indoor mask guidance. You can see the red there. That is high transmission. Uh, but particularly in Florida, seeing those record numbers of hospitalizations rising again today to 10,389. That is higher than the peak that they saw in July 2020. Talk about deja vu happening now. Uh, on Morning Joe this morning, the president of the Florida Hospital Association joined to talk about the kinds of trends they're seeing. We've been thinking about this as a disease that affects older people. She said that's not the case anymore. Right now, we know that it is absolutely affecting a younger population. In Jacksonville, one of our hospitals, their average age now is 42 years old. We have 25-year-olds who are in the hospital in intensive care on ventilators. 
So, Eamon, these scary numbers do seem to be causing some folks to roll up their sleeves and get their shots. In fact, the White House's data, uh, data coordinator for COVID just announcing the country has finally hit that goal of 70 percent of U.S. adults having at least one shot. That was, of course, the goal by July 4th. Uh, but you can see there, people getting their first shots has ticked up about 30 percent week over week. Amen. A little bit of an uptick there. Thanks, Meg. That's grim stuff overall. Up next, from semiconductors to lumber to rubber, the pandemic has presented a shortage of key components. We'll talk to Paolo Ferrari, president and CEO of Bridgestone Americas, about all of that and the company's most recent acquisition. The Exchange coming right back. And welcome back to The Exchange. Manufacturers are facing a rubber shortage as leaf rot ravages crops. Bridgestone is attempting to innovate its way out of the problem using alternative plants. It's also investing more in tech, announcing its acquisition of startup Azuga, whose software tracks delivery drivers. So with us now for an exclusive interview is Paolo Ferrari, CEO of Bridgestone Americas. Thanks so much for being here. Explain this new acquisition, the strategy here. Is the future of the tire business actually in the data business? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, having me. It's great to be with you. And uh, yes, it is an exciting time for us at Bridgestone. Uh, we are, of course, the number one tire and rubber manufacturer in the world. But pivoting to our new vision, which is that to uh, provide value for society and customer, as a sustainable solutions company in this broader new mobility ecosystem where fleet are taking more and more of a leading role. So of course, we will continue to provide tires to these companies, but also we wanna be more relevant and uh, more relevant meaning being also producing and, and delivering more solutions for their uh, more uh, sustainable mobility, more efficient mobility, safer mobility. And it is also thanks to the access of data coming from a very vast customer base. So, Yes, the future is in tires, connected to the vehicles and connected to telematics. Talk to me a little bit about your supply issues, because we're seeing this across industries in this post-COVID economy, or nearly post-COVID economy anyway, as companies are struggling to bring everything in through these different choke points. But in the rubber space, you have a different challenge, which is that there's uh, sort of a rubber pandemic, as it's been described to me, uh, as a shortage of rubber supplies due to some natural uh, diseases that are affecting some of these rubber plants. How are you doing with getting the supply in that you need, the, the products in that you need to get units out the door? So first of all, I have to say that clear market is strong and uh, we're doing very well and uh, mobility has bounced back and therefore we're in a really good space from that point of view. And uh, luckily we haven't really had any uh, supply shortages issue in a way that of course supply is tight, like is for everyone, but we haven't seen anything nearly as complicated, for instance, what the OEMs are seeing. Of course, we fully uh, support them in that. So from our point of view, supply has been relatively good. We haven't had any issues in production and into, of course, uh, uh, selling uh, and producing and selling our own products. Uh, yes, in general, we are working very diligently to continue to study alternative sources to natural rubber, which will continue to be there for the foreseeable future. So we're investing in technology, we're investing in recycling technology, we're investing also in a very interesting uh, project, as you may have heard, uh, in Arizona. So leveraging a different kinds of plant like the guaioli, which also generates rubber in a different way. So I think Paolo, in the short term, managing it relatively well and moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Fascinating conversation. Paolo Ferrari of Bridgestone. Up next, the details of Reese Witherspoon's nearly one billion dollar entertainment deal. Exchange is coming right back with that information. 
and welcome back. Reese Witherspoon's production company, Hello Sunshine, selling to a new Blackstone-based venture. Julia Borston is here with all the details. Julia, what's the deal here? Well, it's, Eamon, it's another mega deal that speaks to the growing value of premium content, particularly for streamers. Now, Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine is selling to a new entertainment company that is backed by Blackstone. Now, it's run by former senior Disney executives Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, and is backed by that private equity giant Blackstone. And the deal values this female-focused content company at about $900 million. That's according to a source close to the situation. Now, Blackstone is spending more than half a billion dollars to buy out current investors, including AT&T. Reese Witherspoon and Hello Sunshine CEO Sarah Hardin will join the board of this new, still unnamed company, and they will continue to run Hello Sunshine. Hello Sunshine produces and sells its female-driven content across platforms, and it has a strong record turning books into bestsellers and then turning those books into hits, such as The Morning Show on Apple TV+, Big Little Lies on HBO, and Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu. Now, the big price tag for this company, which is reported to be hitting profitability this year, speaks to the appeal of their female-focused content and the fact that there just aren't that many independent studios left out there that can sell content across platforms, as most studios are tied up with serving their own streaming platforms. Amen. And Julia, that brings up the question, right, with all those independent studios that are out there, you know, who could be acquired next in this wave of acquisitions that we may or may not be about to be seeing? Well, look, I think this is all part of the media consolidation we've seen, notably with the Warner Media Discovery deal and this and the MGM acquisition by Amazon. So now we're really looking at the smaller players, the sort of one billion dollar range. Uh, and so, you know, LeBron James has been has been working on growing his media company. That's a potential acquisition target. And there's also, of course, questions about whether Lionsgate and Stars, which is a different kind of media company, whether those assets might make sense uh, paired up with some of these other media giants. And they're buying this company this time around for its female-centric content, but the new company is going to be run by two men, right? Well, look, this is the, I have to say Sarah, Sarah Hardin and Reese Witherspoon will be on the board of this company, and they will continue to operate their company independently. The, the Tom Staggs, Kevin Mayer leadership of this company, they're going to be looking to make other acquisitions as well. So this is going to be part of this larger media-focused media, back, media venture that Blackstone is backing. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what other assets they might be looking at to fold in here either some content that could be complementary um, or perhaps similar as they build up this new media, media company that they're working on. Julia, thanks so much for that fascinating conversation there. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.